We're here to talk about some weird stuff. I'm Joe, that's Mike, and I think Mike's going to kick it off today with something that he just learned about. Yeah, so let, let's talk about something weird. I, uh, I have a habit of falling down a weird rabbit hole of things, uh, and one of the things that I learned about just a few days ago was um, an old soda fountain drink. Do you know what a, a, a chocolate egg cream is, Joe? Have you ever had one? I've only heard of them on Easter, yeah. I, but maybe I'm thinking egg clare. That's, yeah, that's different. <laughs> okay, cool. Yeah. Can't have uh, them anyway. So I haven't had one any either because I, I don't drink milk, um, <laughs> which is uh, important to the story. But um, So I was listening to a song and it had a, a lyric in it about a chocolate egg cream and I wanted to know what a chocolate egg cream was. And so I looked it up and I Googled it. And it turns out that a chocolate egg cream has chocolate in it, but doesn't have egg or cream in it. It's a drink. <laughs> That's it's fair. an old-timey old drink you would have at one of those, like, um, 1920s, 1930s, maybe, I don't know, I was in alive, 1950s <laughs> soda fountains. Um, maybe this is why we've never tried one. <laughs> yeah, that's right. They happened entirely in the past. Uh, it's it's a, it's a, a refreshing, quote-unquote, drink that um, they made um, mostly in New York. I gather that it sort of radiated out of, like, Brooklyn and the Bronx um, in these old-timey soda fountains, which used to be drugstores and then became places for, like, toys and candy and newspapers and eggs and stuff like that. Uh, An egg cream has um, soda water, milk, and chocolate syrup in it, and that's it. Uh, you build so you thing. can make these if you wanted to. You could. We so can make if you one wanted right to now. have a party. Yeah. If, you wanted to have an, if I wanted to have a stomachache, <laughs> we could make right. one right now. Uh, and so the I, I looked it up because of this song lyric, um, and the, the weird thing about it is that they are part of this circle of history that's really weird and, and interesting, um, where egg creams were like a refreshing thing. They became very popular in New York, and the, the thing that was um, widely distributed in New York was soda water. So, so like, the, the um, if you picture New York a long time ago, basically, people would get soda water delivered in sort of those glass bottles that, like, you would picture a clown spraying you with. Right. right? Like, soda water was a thing, and it got delivered just like you would get bottles of milk delivered and all that. But the thing that wasn't widely distributed was chocolate syrup, chocolate sauce. And that was sort of the magic ingredient for these uh, drinks. And all of the different shops started out by making their own chocolate sauce. uh, And they would have their own sort of magic recipe, which would have like cocoa powder and maybe sugar and salt and whatever else you put to make chocolate syrup. I don't really know. But eventually someone wised up and figured out that um, people were making money on this. And they started uh, essentially what's what's known as a racket um, by... They made this gigantic amount of chocolate syrup that they sold throughout New York City and kind of the surrounding area at literally half the price of everyone else's. So uh, they basically put everyone else out of business by undercutting their prices so much that they just, no one could, it didn't make sense to buy it from anyone. This is the same kind of racketeering they did with gas, like that that the mob did with gas. That's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. And it's incredible. I don't know why this chocolate syrup person in my head is a mafia boss, (laughs) right? Like he has that look to him in my head. It turns out that there's a lot of being a successful business person in New York in that time that was just about being confident and making it seem like it wasn't illegal. Like Rockefeller. Yeah. I mean, to an extent, yeah. Actually, I was listening to a thing the other day about the original con man uh, who... Con man, I didn't know this. The con and con man, do you know what that stands for? No. Confidence. It's a confidence man. No, I had no idea. It sounds like... It sounds stupid. <laughs> right. It's not like uh, But the, the original con man was someone who would walk up to people on the streets in New York and just like be friendly to them, like be congenial and ask them questions and get to know them and like show them around uh, wherever, whatever like street corner they were on in New York and offer them advice. Uh, and then at one point he would turn to them and say... Um, would you show a little confidence in a stranger and uh, let me look at your watch? And just with, just like that, oh, they would wow. take off their watch, put it in his hands, and he would just walk away. 
Jeez. I mean, I feel like that still exists today. Yeah. You look at like something like Newman from WeWork. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> they just called, uh, they just know how to monetize charisma. Right. You're exactly right. They're confidence men. That's right. <laughs> they, really they really are. Yeah. And, you know, despite the fact that that may, may be a sexist term, it's <laughs> probably better to, to pin that on men than anyone else. It's, it's pretty horrible to, to, uh, to imagine that, like, well, I guess it's interesting to imagine that at, that at some time in the past, New York was a place where people were just like, much more innocent. Yeah. You know? Like, there were wheat fields, literally, in the middle of Manhattan, and people were just walking around giving their watch to strangers <laughs> because they didn't know any better. Yeah, it's super bizarre. Anyway, so so back to the um, the chocolate Zero. and cream thing. Right. So, this, this guy started this racket and started putting all of the other chocolate makers out of business to the point where, eventually, uh, they started to go out of business and he had the whole circuit where... Uh, if you weren't buying your chocolate sauce directly from him, you were buying it from a middleman who he supplied to. So everyone else went out of business, uh, and there's one brand that's still in business right now, and it's called I think it's called Fox's Super Good or something like that. Oh. Uh, you can go buy it. I don't know if it's Lincoln any good. Bio. Yeah, that's right. That's right. We're, we're brought to you by Chocolate that's right. uh, and that's the only one remaining. And it's funny that that so that started. I want to say it was somewhere after Prohibition. Uh, and we're almost a hundred years later, and this one brand is still around because oh they were the best at being the illegal guys. <laughs> like that was their whole shtick. Was I don't even know if the chocolate syrup is any good, um, but it doesn't have to be at half price. That's right. And and the funny thing about it is that history tells that story a little differently now. So um, as I was going down this rabbit hole and reading, if you go and look up recipes for these egg creams, most of them point to it's not an egg cream unless you have this chocolate this syrup. Brand. And it's funny that that's not the case. It's just. These guys put everyone else out of business, so they're the ones that the history books remember. Right. Yeah. Really, really odd. Um, so where did you find this rabbit? Like, what got you onto it? It was a song uh, by G-Love and the Special Sauce that I was listening to as I was sitting in my office yesterday and working. I'll have to find the name of the song. But he, he just, like, in a in at the end of a line, he sort of screams, like, chocolate egg cream, and I was like, what is that? <laughs> it's like, this this is now stuck in my head, and the work I'm doing is not important. Right. And so I followed. And followed. Then, so where do you go? Right from there. So if you're... You hear something that like sparks your interest. You pause the song. Yeah. What's your go-to search? It seems illogical, but one hundred percent of the time for me, it's YouTube. Yeah, like, <laughs> I want to see someone make one. I mean, it makes perfect sense though, because I really do feel like YouTube is what Google could have been, even though that makes sense. Like they own it, right? <laughs> but also, if I think search, I don't want to just see text headlines coming back at me. I right. want to see images with it. I want to know that there's videos with it. I right. want to know that the person that put this out wanted to be more than just writing it down yeah it's almost like you have the confidence to put it out in something that's a little bit more visual and media oriented and like willing to take the time it takes longer to make a youtube video than does to write a medium blog yeah right so it's like it just makes me feel like they put more into it (laughs) any different results a completely irrational this is a post decision making rationalization (laughs) but i really do feel like you'll get some better search results there so here's the thing to corroborate that, which again, this is whatever bias you want to inject towards the conversation, but uh, the the video I ended up watching was a 15 minute, quote, oral history of the egg cream, right? <laughs> it was a video essay on the egg cream made by this guy on YouTube who I knew from being on the internet for long enough right. from this candy shop in Florida called Lofty Pursuits. And it's like this happy-go-lucky, like middle-aged nerdy guy who like runs a candy shop in Florida where he makes like sugar hard candies and documents it on YouTube 
and has like, I don't know, I would guess like a quarter of a million subscribers. Jeez. And just like posts videos of himself making like candy canes and stuff like that. I always wonder what candy shop, because you see them in every small town. Yeah. Every small town has a candy shop. And you're like, how do you afford that 2,000 square feet? Right. Are you selling that much candy? Right. Like even now, I just don't, I don't get it because I don't know anybody that's like a huge candy person other than like for munchies. But like, yeah. who's going to these like gourmet candy shops and buying... Well, I think some of it Sugar is... Sugar-laden... Like, I don't know. It just seems like such a weird cultural thing to be having right now. I mean, rent is lower in other places than Macon, right? Like, that's they don't pay as much as we do here. That's for sure. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I've never <laughs> gone into one and... Well, no, actually, that's not true. It's a touristy thing, for sure. I was in Cape Cod over the summer, and there's a fudge shop in Cape Cod that, like, literally the... Uh, sorry, Provincetown in Cape Cod, the, there's a giant parking lot on a pier... And you walk off the parking lot and, like, can't help but walk past this place that has this, like, wafting smell of, like, uh, uh, chocolate and all these other things coming out of it. And Got like, it. Yeah, that makes sense because that's funneling people into it. Right. But, yeah, I don't know. I've never been to Albuquerque. And yeah, but, I mean, I just went outside of uh, Philadelphia and they have them in there. And it's just, like, this small town. Yeah. And it's got this candy. And it doesn't, like, they sell nerds. Like, it's not, right. like, gourmet. It's, it's kind of just... Candy, yeah, like what you see at the front of a checkout in any Walgreens or CVS, <laughs> right. just all over a whole store. Except like the lollipops get bigger as you go back. <laughs> like, I don't know, it's just like a kind of a strange small thing. But you see them in every small town. You know what I want? A Tell Werther's me. original. Oh, but not from a CVS. <laughs> <laughs> recently, <laughs> recently, Barstool posted um, that like the U.S. map of every state and what their favorite candy is. And it was, like, not backed by real data. <laughs> and were those originals were North Carolinas. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. Kind of makes sense. Maps maps should be used for evil. I think that's great. Why not? It's but back great. to the YouTube thing. Yeah. So you went on YouTube first. Yes. And then is that where you, is that where the rabbit hole stopped? Do you go down no, video after video I'm, related? Or I'm, do you kind of then... In this case, I think I watched two videos. And then from there, I went to find recipes. Because uh, I wanted to know, you want to make your own. I wanted to know what was in the chocolate syrup. That like, why is it so? Why? Right. What could one person sell it and be like, this is the only one? Right. And all of the recipes I found, surprise, surprise, were basically the same. It's like cocoa powder and some other stuff. Right. Right. Like <laughs> it's made of chocolate and, it, right. and it's heavily sugar based. Uh, and so when it came down to it, they, I, I looked up the recipe and then I looked up like, are there still places you can buy like? Like, are there still original soda fountains out there that exist? I think there's a handful in New York still. Um, but because everything can exist in New York. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. There's a there's enough of a subculture of a subculture there for people to, to be interested in it. Uh, yeah, I don't know. It was probably an hour of my life that disappeared last night while I was like procrastinating going to sleep because right. <laughs> you know today was going to be horrible. So I find myself down those rabbit holes. I mean, I don't even want to call them rabbit holes anymore. I think it's like kind of a part of my day or my weekend or whatever I find that time. Because I've been a YouTube guy for, God, I guess going on like seven or eight years now. Like I was one of the first people, like the new people to cancel cable when Hulu came out. And yeah. I was like, oh, cool. I can watch them whenever I want. Like I was binge watching before binge watching really became cool. And when you're left with that, I was teaching myself how to code and do all that kind of stuff on YouTube. So that's where I was. I was just always on YouTube. And then as soon as the Apple TV had the YouTube app, that's where I used to watch all of my content. Right. And then over like the past three or four years... That's where I get a lot of my normal content from. Like, I'm watching shows on YouTube. I'm watching, you know, kind of consistently watching those kinds of shows. But they lead down the same rabbit holes. It's almost like it's like a culture in itself. There are people that live just within the YouTube walls. Yeah. They know the people that are celebrities on there. They know the transactions. They even go as far to, like, talk about the advertising that's done with the people that are on. Right? Like, it's, like, such a... But it's also huge. Yeah. If you really think about it, something like four... 
hundred hours get uploaded to YouTube every minute? Yeah, I think it's every second. I think it's it's, 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 it's unbelievable. Yeah. <laughs> it is a wild amount of content. It's it, the question I have at some point is like, are you so like when you watch a video on YouTube and there's a bunch of suggested things that show up on the screen at the end or like on the page while the video is playing? Those are populated by uh, some logic, and, and that's called the algorithm, right? Right. And people talk about like how the algorithm gets you to watch more stuff, and YouTube is built to be psychologically addictive like that. But what I want to know at some point is like, we're, we're obviously victims of the algorithm, right? We right. Go to the next thing, and the next thing. But, like, at what point in your life are you, like, having a conversation with someone at a bar or over dinner or whatever, and they ask you a question, and you're like, oh, I can find that, and you pull it up on your phone. And, like, are you being moved by the algorithm at that point, right? Is your yeah. action there when you're not even connected to the software? You're, right. You're going in and, and... That your own brain's algorithm is yeah. taking you down the same paths. That the, it's almost like reprogramming how you think about things yeah. and the things that you find related. Yeah. You know, there was just a, there was actually just an interesting video. I think Joe Rogan mentioned it in his podcast where he's talking about how something like a YouTube algorithm versus like a Instagram or a Facebook that's connecting social fabric, right? It's more like things that you would find interesting because your friends find these interesting. And obviously there's more complexity to that. But in YouTube, you're learning. You're not, no one goes to Facebook to learn something. No one goes to Instagram to learn something. They go to consume. People go to YouTube originally was mostly for tutorials and guides and things that you were trying to like learn about. Yeah. And so now you're in a culture where it's like, you could be exposed. You know what they brought it up around? Cults. Because oh, yeah. so, like, if you go start researching a cult, you start with the videos that maybe are just generally about them, and depending on the next video you click on, whether it's for the cult or against the cult, it can kind of brainwash you in a way. Because yeah. this is the only thing that you now know about that cult, and those videos that they're going to serve you are not the opposing belief. Right. It's the same belief, reiterated and reiterated yeah. by possibly the people that you already know about, people that you've seen on YouTube before, people that have social clout to you yeah and that's kind of ner like unnerving when you think about kids who don't know the difference between it right like the majority of people on the platform they said are what like it's like 15 to 19 or something like that yeah they don't know the difference between it so this is the first time they're getting exposure to any of this and they're not looking at it with the same mind that we are where it's like oh this is literally anybody uploading anything about anything right yeah because um uh, wikipedia for example and encyclopedia maybe going back a step further is not flavored by your own bias you know, 100%. you look up something in the encyclopedia and it is a fact. It's all facts. Right. You know, but you can go on YouTube and start with any particular thing. Let's say a cult, right? Or something that's cult-ish and click one video will bring you to this is not a cult. The next video will bring you to this is yes, a cult. And then you've already picked your direction. Yeah. It's very difficult to, to get back from there. Um, and that that's an interesting question. That's almost like how do we educate people to be able to think objectively when facts can be so elusive, right? Right. When it's hard to know what you're seeing is true or not. Well, that's why I think it's so funny about this fake news culture, because it's really about, it's not even about fake, it's about fake facts. Like, forget about the news component of it, that, like, what's going live, like, what's happening around the world can be, but, like, history can be tainted. Yeah. Because no one's focused on that. Everyone's focused on the clicks. So when everything about the clicks is monetized, what falls by the wayside? The truth. <laughs> because yeah. it actually doesn't matter. What actually matters is the click. You know, it's, and I think this is a, kind of tangential, but Gary Vaynerchuk gives an example of um, when advertising could really go wrong. And he talks about Samsung during the end, not the NBA, uh, March Madness a couple years ago. They put out a campaign for their new phone, whatever, maybe put in the new note, whatever it was at the time. And they put a banner ad on mobile on the site that people were going to, whatever that site was. I don't follow sports very closely. Um, on the site, whatever it was going to to refresh the scores for March Madness. 
And he's like, I'm in one of this very important meeting. He's like, but of course I have time to refresh my phone and just see what the scores are to keep up to date. He goes, I refresh and this banner ad comes down and the X button is just too small. You cannot close it. Yeah. He's like, so I click on it. He's like, to try to close it and it takes me to the Samsung site. He's like, and then I do it again and again and again. He goes, and all I can picture is this marketing agency that's getting click after click on this ad and then delivering that result to Samsung, who's like, wow, you guys are the best marketing team we've ever seen. They're all giving each other high fives. He goes, but in reality, I walked out of the room halfway through and called my wife and said, no one in our family will ever fucking buy a Samsung product for as long as we live. Yeah. Because that's the truth behind those numbers. Well, the same thing is happening with news and facts and everything, right? Like we're right. sitting back, we're watching these videos get millions and millions of views. And rather than talking about the content in that video or trying to correct it, we're trying to buddy up with it. We're trying to be the related search. What? Yeah. It's kind of a wild thing to think about this is the future of it. The future of people creating new content is to try to bank off of the, what's relative and relatable. Right. And that's not how news should be delivered and not how facts should be delivered and how learning should take place. Yeah, it's already... I just also, don't know how you unspin it. I mean, it's really tainted news delivery vehicles, right? So, like, I... I Services that otherwise used to be the the central repository for news about whatever. So like Bloomberg, Wall Street, Journal, um, Forbes, um, New York Times, Washington Post, and all these. Like even our local newspaper here in Macon. Like when you go to their website uh, and you load up the page, it will absolutely inundate you with ads, right? You can read an article and there'll be a banner ad at the top. There'll be interstitial ads in the middle of each paragraph. Uh, you might have a popover ad that is all in an attempt to monetize the news that they're delivering. At some level, that's just a sign that news uh, in itself needs to be delivered in a different way, right? It's no longer right. profitable in the way that it once was, and the information is less valuable than all the other crap. Like, they're, they're bringing you to their page to tell you about news and populating that page with distractions. Yep. You know? So there's something that has to change there, and some... some I don't know what it is, but I think some uh, foundational thing needs to be different about how we consume news. Uh, and in a sense, maybe it's just that we... To have to start thinking about news as something that is not a for-profit industry. But once you do that, then it's... Then it's PBS. Paid, yeah, it's PBS. It's paid for by the government. And you know, <laughs> it's taken by that. It doesn't right. even matter, yeah. right? And that's, and that's the interesting piece, too, because a lot of new content... So it used to be, if something made it to TV or made it to a movie, you're like, the amount of money that went... Like, they're not going to do this unless it's true. Or they're not going to do this. But that's not true anymore. Now we're in such a prosperous time... That plenty of people, I just heard something yesterday, there's like way more billionaires than I thought there were yeah. in the world, yeah. right? Like, and it's on an unbelievable upswing from the, even as late as the 1980s, right? Like 1980s, there was like under a thousand and now there's like 25, 2600, mostly due to like China growing economy and all that kind of stuff. But, but if you really look at that, you're like, okay, so now these people get to form it because they can penetrate markets that otherwise had such a barrier of entry where it's like there feels like there needs to be a system of checks and balances almost like in the government for the way that we populate. And news is, news is going to always be difficult. But what about just facts? Like just learning things about different cultures and about our own society from the past. Like there's no reference. So like what are you going to do? You're going to watch a YouTube. Let's say you're 16. You watch a YouTube video on something you find interesting. What are you going to go to fact check, fact check that? Wikipedia? Another completely open source thing, right? Like you're not going to grab an encyclopedia of something that somebody published because you probably don't even know if they exist anymore. Right. You're going to ask your parents, well, they're tainted by the same news that you, so it's like, where do you go to be like, okay, this is actually true. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I feel like it kind of gets lost at some point. It, it sort of is lost. And 
we can debate about the efficacy or value of it, but libraries themselves are shrinking and being repurposed. And I think in general, the, cha- the way the libraries are changing is good um, because people are engaging with them. So in other words, libraries are shrinking, but books are literally physically disappearing from libraries. And maybe they're being digitized, maybe they're being removed altogether, but the space in the library is being used for things like a makerspace or 3D printing or public meetings for clubs and groups and things like that. It's becoming a different sort of space than it was when uh, you and I were kids. Um, but it also represents a, an erasure of, of a source for knowledge. Um, and maybe that's just a problem we have to deal with as, as a society that's growing as rapidly as we do. Um, because even then there are things that you and I could never possibly find the actual truth out about, right? Right. Like if you wanted to know uh, what it was like to live in Cambodia in 1910, how the hell are you going to find that out? <laughs> right. Who are you going to ask? Even if you right. go to Cambodia, <laughs> there's not a lot of people around from 1910 who could express it to you in a way that you would understand. Um, it, it becomes a really big problem. We have to figure out how to tell people this is true enough or this is based in ethical sourcing in some way that like, I don't know, you should trust this or, or does it come down to the fact that, well, maybe we need to just go back to the moral roots of things, right? Like right. our history is tainted and there's lots to learn from it, but like in the end, should decision-making be based on uh, a shared common goal of, of, of people, of country, of the world, right? Like, I don't know, what's the goal here? But you look at, like, even as kids are growing up now, and I don't have kids, but this is what I've imagined. I'm like, so these kids are growing up with so much stimulus being thrown at them, so much content, so much, like, you, you can't keep attention for longer than, I mean, and again, I guess this is obviously going into our background, but, like, you look at websites, they used to have a ton of information on them. Now it knows that it doesn't have your attention for longer than the headlines. So you look at the most profitable companies, the companies that are crushing in like uh, grab, like land grabs, it's all headlines. They yeah. don't even bother to write the subject matter. It's just like, here's a headline, here's a headline. Because they know that you're just skimming the site and they're, you're either going to take action or you're not going to take action. Right. So if we know that that's the way that people are consuming things, then kids are not going to be expected to consume any differently in the classroom. So that means our classrooms are now filled with content. So it's a, but they have their laptops open, they have their phones out, right? Like they're, they're engaging the same way they were outside. And I heard an interesting argument recently about the decree like, and the amount of history that we're even teaching in schools. Because it's not interesting to kids. Yeah. Because they're off onto the next thing when back even 20, 30 years ago, this, all of this distraction didn't exist. So you were more interested in learning about history. You're more interested in seeing how things, because things are still repeating themselves. That hasn't changed, right? Like the concepts that are working today in business are still very fundamentally, have been around for the last hundred years. Yeah. Even without the internet and now with the internet, there's just a different delivery mechanism. We've still got racketeering. Yeah, that's, that's right. You know? Yeah. You know what I mean? So I just think it's interesting that there doesn't seem to be, I mean, I think there's always going to be people thinking about how to solve this problem, but even to me in a logical way, I'm not sure how this problem gets solved at a fundamental level, meaning educating the youth, because that is who's going to be sitting here 20 years from now talking about whether or not it worked, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's a, um, a scary future that's going to, maybe not scary, an uncertain future. That's it's a definitely right. uncertain. We're definitely in a time of like, I feel like this is right after the industrial revolution where it's like, we're right past the dot-com era and it's like, we're still in its infancy. We're still just figuring out what all of these things do and what they mean. And we're going to see now what the 10 and 15 year results of social media are on society. We're seeing them now. Yeah. And I don't think it's all bad. I really hate when people are like, this is the ruination of society. Uh, I don't think so. I think no different than anything else. Like, 
the Industrial Revolution introduced just as much machinery, just as much job displacement, just as much of all of these things where we're like, what do we do now? The whole world's ending. No, it's actually going to get a lot better. I'd still pick to live right now than in the 50s. 100%. Any other time. 100 out of 100 times. Yeah. Right? Although... Honestly, if I was asked what decade, I think it would be cool to like be growing up in the 90s, like actually growing up in the 90s, and then like to be our age right now in the early 2000s. Yeah. First of all, because we'd be lying in our pockets with any ideas, right? Because any, <laughs> any dot com guy, right? Um, so I think that would be super cool. But I also think it was a time when like there was really, it was like the right amount of people sharing and, be, and it felt a lot more comfortable and like we were easing into it versus now, which is just like how viral can we be? Yeah. Okay. How quickly can we disseminate information? I think I would pick somewhere between 1950 and 1965. You would? Yeah. For you personally or just generally you think it would be cool to go back and back? For me personally, living in the U.S. in particular. Like, I think it was just a very innocent time where like people were, there were problems, there were real problems, like the beginning of the Vietnam War and the Korean War were all around then, but, and God knows we had a president assassinated somewhere right. around there. So not everything was perfect, but it was just um, the time after World War II and sort of before the Cold War, it's just a very fascinating, innocent time in our history. And I think that like, even the way things were advertised was so much like more congenial and weird and like right. goofy and <laughs> innocent than, than I have ever experienced. It'd be really interesting to be able to cognizantly experience that in real time. Yeah. All right, Joe. Uh, before we sign off, tell me one unexpected, weird, strange, or odd thing you've seen on the internet this week. Unexpected? Um, oh, goodness. Visco Girls. Visco Girls. Visco Girls. So okay. this is like, this is this concept of, so I think Visco is another app, similar to Instagram, where they have filters and all that kind of stuff, and it's another subculture of girls who are like figuring out the best ways to present themselves as their own brands. But they're kind of taking over Instagram and YouTube, which then, and I think that what fascinates, I guess it's not so weird, but it's fascinating to me how something could start as like a piece of social media, a piece of culture, and then suddenly start tainting the other things that people are doing. Yeah. And then now you become, and like once you hit uh, Urban Dictionary as your own like noun that people make videos about becoming a Visco girl, like that stuff is fascinating to me. Have a growth. It's almost like 4chan, right? Like starts somewhere low, yeah. and then memes are generated out of there. And then by the time you see them on Instagram, they're old in the eyes of everybody that sits there all day and kind of looks at this kind of stuff. Right. And so to see the growth of something like this, like a TikTok, where it's like, how do you? How did this even come about? And now it's so rampant that you can't stop it, and that there's already cultures against it, and that they have like differing opinions on. It. I don't know. That's kind of fascinating. Yeah. That's so weird, but it is just kind of. The, I haven't heard of it until recently. Visco is one of those things where the arc of history on the internet is very fast, but also sort of long. Like, Visco started, so before Instagram sort of won the war for, like, being the picture or social media, whatever yeah. the hell we're calling that, there was, they were competing with Hipstamatic, which was the first app to have really good filters. Maybe not the first, but one of the first few apps to have really right. good filters where you could take a picture on your garbage iPhone 5 and turn it into something that looked more aesthetic uh, with their few filters. Instagram took that and ran away with it and then applied the social network thing to it, which really blew it up. Uh, but Instagram's filters weren't good for a long time. So Visco existed as a standalone app where you could import your picture into Visco, filter it, edit it, and then spit it back out to Instagram. And for a long while, long time, there, there's a hashtag that you can go look at on Instagram that it might be Visco Cam, V-S-C-O Cam. And if you go, I mean, there's right, sure, there's billions of posts. Yeah. But the oldest posts on that are ones that they were trying to advertise their app on Instagram to get people to use the filters to come back to it. And they must have seen what's happening on Instagram with 
the timeline not no longer being a timeline and being way yeah, no, chronological. The algorithm right. uh, and and gone and done it chronologically and also made it a much smaller personal you know thing. Um, yeah, I don't know a ton about it, and I want to learn more. Yeah, well, just say, if you look up, I mean, the, the, basically the article was about this girl who blew up because she made a video, like, how to become a Visco girl, and then a bunch of people started making them because it became a trend, but, like, this was a girl who had very few followers and got, like, five million views on this video. Yeah. Um, because it's interesting, as soon as you take a stance against it, you'll probably see the same popularity in reverse, right? There's just as many people upset by the culture as there are okay with it. Yeah, yeah. All right, yeah, that's a good one, man. Let's uh, do what I can. <laughs> let's, let's wrap it up here.